Good morning. Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 to chapter 2, verse 5. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let no one, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, a church that he had planted and started uh, less than five years before he wrote this letter, uh, Paul opened his letter to the Corinthians by telling them that their divisions, their factions, were absurd. And that they in a spirit of Corinthian competitive individualism. Uh, Corinth had a propensity for developing social cliques, uh, social status based on who you knew and how influential you were and, and how you developed in the world and made a name for yourself and how you built your own influence out of nothing. Um, that propensity in the local culture had, had infiltrated the church there in Corinth. So that their personal pride in themselves or the pride that individuals had in the different leaders that they were attracted to or found identity in, um, that pride was tearing the church apart into factions, obscuring the main point of their faith, the cross of Jesus Christ, which was really the only thing in the world that united them together. So prideful boasting, um, you may have experienced this, prideful boasting, though it portrays confidence, it's actually detrimental. 
Prideful boasting as a habit, as a posture, as a way of thinking and living and speaking to other people, prideful boasting, um, it masks vulnerability. And that's a really bad thing to say goodbye to vulnerability in your life. We need vulnerability. For instance, if you're going to learn a subject or you're going to learn a new sport or a new card game or, or you're, going, you're going to learn a new task for your work, for your job, you have to admit, you have to admit to yourself and to other people that you don't know how to do it, that you need to be taught, that you need people and information outside of yourself in order to perform well. You need to acknowledge your vulnerability and your lack of knowledge. Or to be a good friend, to grow a good friendship, or, or to grow a good marriage, you have to daily open yourself up to rejection, don't you? If you're going to help somebody, minister to somebody, teach somebody, encourage somebody, the very act of reaching out and movement towards that person is a, is a vulnerability and a willingness to face potential rejection. So vulnerability enables you to mature as a human being, and vulnerability enables you to have meaningful relationships with one another. Prideful boasting works against vulnerability. You stop learning. You become less able to relate to other people. And the most obvious and exaggerated examples of how prideful boasting uh, kills vulnerability in, in our lives is famous people. Think of celebrities or success, some successful athletes and some world leaders. Think about that. Uh, according to an article in The Atlantic from 2017, an article called Power Causes Brain Damage, uh, there is, according to one neurologist, a term called hubris syndrome. This is basically what it is. A disorder of the possession of power, particularly power which has been associated with overwhelming success, held for a period of years and with minimal constraint on the leader. Clinical features include manifest contempt for others, loss of contact with reality, restless and reckless actions, displays of incompetence. And actually, the article goes on to say uh, that for the world leaders, the powerful, influential, successful people in the world that tend to stay sane and stay real and stay vulnerable are the people that have someone in their life who keeps them in check. So for Winston Churchill, uh, it was his wife that kept him real when he got super cranky. Um, and I, I think, I'm sorry, I, I think m if I remember reading the article correctly, for Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, it was one of his top advisors who refused to call him Mr. President. During the, yeah, exactly, we think, ooh. But for the leaders who made it through without going crazy, because of their power and influence and success. It was the ones where somebody in their life was successfully able to keep their feet on the ground, their heads out of the clouds. So pride fuels disunity because pride, prideful boasting, cuts you off from the pathways in your life that lead to learning 
into relationship. You just heard an elder of the church say to you in public during the confession, I've just learned something new about God. Pride does not produce a comment like that. Only vulnerability does. The Christian community can boast in actually what brings us together. The church can boast in something that actually brings unity. It's a very rare thing to boast in something that doesn't divide but unites. And it's the grace of God. You need to understand grace if you're going to save yourself from the kind of pride that shuts the creator of the universe out of your life forever. And as we talk about the grace of God, and as we read the Apostle Paul's words today, we're going to talk about and discover what Paul boasted about, and what we boast about, and actually get this, what God boasts about. What Paul boasted about, what you and I boast about, and interestingly enough, what God loves to boast about. Now, what Paul boasted about was simply nothing. Paul made it his habit, you can read it in his other letters, he made it his habit to try to not be boastful about anything in and of himself, his accomplishments, his background, what made him seem to be an impressive individual, which, of which he was. Um, Paul tried to make it a habit to not boast about anything from a human standpoint. Essentially, what he's trying to say to the Corinthians in chapter 1 and going into chapter 2 is that human boasting, something they had a problem with, human boasting and the message of Christianity are utterly opposed to each other. For instance, if you look at chapter 1, verse 21, he, he writes to them, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There are a lot of word plays there in that passage uh, between folly and wisdom. But what he's basically saying is that the quote-unquote wisdom of society regards the Christian message as quote-unquote folly. And the Greek word Paul used for folly is the same word where we get the English word for moron. So what Paul is saying is that the wisdom of society regards the Christian message as something only a moron would believe and give their life to. And what Paul is saying is, aha, but in reality, it is God's wisdom making fools of society. And he demonstrates how the wisdom of God has made, has made fools of society. And he demonstrates it in three ways. He says there are three things by which God is outsmarting and overpowering the wisdom and power of the world. The foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of the Corinthians, and then even the foolishness of Paul himself. The foolishness of the cross can be seen in verses 22 and 23. He says, for Jews demand signs... And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. So many, uh, this is what Paul is alluding to from his own experience. 
Uh, many, many Jews of his day had rejected the message of the cross, the message of Christianity, because it scandalized them. That's the Greek word. When, when it says that, that the, the Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews, it literally reads, it is a scandal to Jews. Look, the, the Jews of Paul's day and before him, they were looking for a Moses-like miracle worker. They were looking for a David-like conquering general of a king to come in and spare them and save them. That's what they were looking for. And what they got was a Messiah who was hung on a Roman cross, which was a symbol to the ancients of utter humiliation and shame. The symbol of a Roman cross to first century Jews was like the symbol of the Holocaust for 20th century Jews, was like the symbol of, of lynching for African-Americans over the last three to four centuries. The cross was a symbol of shame and humiliation and fear. And the idea that their Messiah would be hung on a Roman cross scandalized them, is what Paul is saying. And so that became a stumbling block to many Jews in which they could not accept the message of the cross. Now for Gentiles or Greeks, we're using, this is a Greek city, Corinth. It really is Roman now, but its history was that it was a Greek city. And, um, and so, you know, you can use Gentile and Greek interchangeably for our purposes today. But the Gentiles rejected the message for a different reason. The Gentiles rejected the message of Christianity because it confounded their common sense. They would think things like this. Why, why would God not appear as an emperor like Caesar? Why would God not come to us as a philosopher like Aristotle? God came to us as a common Jewish carpenter? That doesn't sound like something that the gods would plan and enact, that just seems moronic. So the foolishness of the cross was one way that Paul says God is making fools of the wisdom of this world. God is outmaneuvering the power systems of this world. But there's another way, the foolishness of the Corinthians themselves. If you look at verse 26, he goes on to write, hey, considering your calling brothers, brothers means all of them, men and women and children, consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Okay, so that implies not many of you, that some of them were. Some of them were status people. Some of them were quite influential, maybe just a few. But as you read the book of Acts and the book of Romans, you discover that there were at least a few Corinthians of note in that church. We know that there was at least the city treasurer among them. Uh, there was a one man wealthy enough to have a large enough house to host the entire church. We also know that a former synagogue ruler was now a member of the church who had converted to Christianity. Some of them were of some notoriety, but most of them were not. Um, most of them were common people whose ancestors were slaves, who were forced out of Rome over 100 years before to start a new colony in the rubbles of Corinth. If you've been listening over the last couple of weeks, you know that. Everybody in Corinth was the descendant 
of a former slave or poor person or ex-military person who was forced out of uh, the overpopulated Rome uh, about 150 BC. Uh, so, so Paul just says, look at yourselves. You're not noteworthy people, socially speaking, politically speaking, financially speaking, and morally speaking, because even the ones who were rich and influential still had a moral issue. All right, even morally speaking, all of you are unlikely recipients of God's kindness and favor. The foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of the Corinthians themselves, and finally, the foolishness of Paul himself. The beginning of chapter 2, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. This is the second time Paul's brought up lofty speech and wisdom, how, how the Greeks prized themselves in philosophy and rhetoric and influential oratory. I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What we know by reading Acts chapter 18 is that Paul, on his second missionary journey, showed up in the city of Corinth, harassed, bruised, persecuted, imprisoned. He was harassed and chased all the way down the Aegean coast. In Philippi, in Berea, in Thessalonica, in Athens, and he ends up in Corinth. Having been exhausted, worn out, the Spirit of God did amazing things through Paul's ministry and teaching. Starting churches, faithful communities of Christians in all of those cities. But it cost Paul physically, emotionally, a lot. And he ends up in Corinth, a broken down, tired individual. So much so that the Lord Jesus appeared to him one night in a vision and said to him, Paul, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in the city who are my people. Paul needed to hear that when he showed up in Corinth. That's why he's saying to them, you remember me? I didn't come to you in words of eloquent wisdom. The word was Sophia. I didn't come to you in eloquent wisdom like a philosopher. I came to you a beat up guy in much fear and trembling. He was a vulnerable man, not an eloquent philosopher of Sophia wisdom but a vulnerable preacher. And God worked through Paul's weakness so that through Paul's teaching about the cross, the spirit moved. The power of God moved, not in great miracles, but the power of God moved because people converted to Christianity. The few Jews that were there, some of them did, and many Gentiles in Corinth converted to Christianity and a church started there. That was the demonstration of the power of God's Spirit among them. But through Paul's weakness, God worked. And that's what Paul is saying to them. That's the third way that the wisdom of God is making a fool of the wisdom of this world is through my weakness, people have believed in the name of Jesus. The New Testament scholar Gordon Fee summarized Paul's point 
with these words. And I think this is an excellent summary. Imagine Paul saying this. So you think that the gospel is a form of Sophia? You think the gospel is a form of conventional worldly wisdom? How foolish can you get? Look at its message. It is based on the story of a crucified Messiah. Who in the name of wisdom would have dreamed that up? Only God is so wise as to be so foolish. Furthermore, look at its recipients, (laughs) yourselves. Who in the name of wisdom would have chosen you to be the new people of God? Finally, remember my own preaching. Who in the name of wisdom would have come in such weakness? Yet, look at its results. Just indulge me. Allow me to illustrate what Paul is trying to say with the wisdom of the Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> some, of you, some of you might remember, if you're familiar with the book or the movie, The Council of Elrond, with where all the world leaders get together, all the wise and the great and the influential get together and say, what in the world are we going to do about the impending disaster that's coming upon all of us? And in that moment when little Frodo declares to the council, I will take the ring. I'll take the ring into Mordor and I will destroy it. When he says that, the great, wise, ancient Elrond declares, this is the hour of the Shire folk. When they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great, who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Or if they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? The the great, powerful, dark Lord Sauron, despite his vast knowledge, despite his limitless power, he couldn't perceive one thing. He couldn't perceive that the two least intimidating, unsophisticated, ill-equipped people in Middle-earth would walk straight into his backyard to destroy the most desired treasure, the most powerful weapon in all the world. The folly of sending Frodo and Sam into Mordor worked because it undermined Sauron's common sense and the wisdom of the great, which proved to, in fact, be not folly, but the wisdom of the wizard Gandalf cunning wisdom to make something foolish be successful. This captures what Paul is trying to say, the gospel of the cross, that God would become a human being to die in the place of broken, washed up, wicked sinners, criminals. That idea undermined Satan's common sense and the wisdom of of the elite. Therefore, Paul's conclusion is, hey, you have nothing to boast about. He says, um, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And he goes on to quote the prophet Jeremiah, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So since, like the Corinthians, our society runs on upward social mobility, right? It's said that America runs on Duncan. 
It's equally true that America runs on the desire and the hope that each of us and our families and our children and grandchildren after us will benefit from upward social mobility, okay? So we need to hear this. We need to hear the words, all of us, in our work, in our reputation, in what we're dreaming about and hoping for and planning and our desires and hopes for our kids. We need to hear those words, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We boast about everything and everyone. We, we boast in what we know or in what our leaders and teachers know, or we boast in how strong we are um, or how strong our heroes are. Now, what we know and how strong we are, that can take on many different forms in in our lives, depending on who we are and what our story is, what our situation is. But, but I want you to think about how often we boast about everything and everyone. Try to observe, just try and be objective and observe how people post on Facebook and Instagram. Pay attention to political debates on cable TV. Pay attention to next year's Democratic and Republican national conventions and watch the nonstop boasting and absolute unwillingness to reveal any sense of vulnerability that you will see take place. Note how some people talk about their church or their ministry or their brand of theology. Just watch and observe. We hide our vulnerability. We're all vulnerable. We just don't admit it or we don't want to show it, but we all hide our vulnerability in order to promote our strengths. Or we just lie. We just lie. Your prideful boasting, according to what Paul said to the Corinthians, your prideful boasting is pointless. And do you know why? This is actually an encouraging thing. Your boasting, your pride, your arrogance is pointless because you would have never thought of grace. That's what Paul is saying. Your boasting is pointless because you never would have thought of what God did to save you. Grace is God's undeserved love and righteousness given to you as a gift. Nothing you worked for, nothing you earned, nothing you deserve. Grace is getting something you haven't worked for, something you haven't earned, something you haven't and could never deserve. You can't boast in something you've been given freely as a gift that you didn't work for or earn. Or earn. The wisest professor, the simplest grocery store bagger, the, um, the strongest executive and, and the weakest victim at the cross all receive by faith, they receive the gift of God's salvation. Nobody had the wisdom to plan what Jesus did for you. Nobody had the power to accomplish what Jesus did for you. Therefore, all of us are equals by the grace of God with nothing to boast about except what Jesus did for all of us. So I'm encouraging you today to cultivate in your life, in the way you think, and in how you talk to people, cultivate a thankful heart. Become a thankful person because of what God did for you. 
cultivate a thankful heart because God did what you couldn't do. Your family couldn't do it. Your friends, your connections, your heritage, your education, your natural, your natural talents and abilities, nothing, nothing that you conceived of, nothing you could do would accomplish your salvation. There is a dangerous connection between wisdom and power. Wisdom, or let's use the word knowledge. I'll just for now use them interchangeably. In our society, in our world, wisdom or knowledge gets you power and influence. But here's the funny thing. Power, when mismanaged, disables your ability to maintain knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom gets you power in this world, but power mismanaged disables your wisdom. The psychiatrist Craig Thompson wrote a really important book called The Soul. He wrote a couple of good books, but he wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. And in that book, he talks about the dangerous connection between wisdom and power. He wrote, we seek knowledge. We want to know. And to know, in some cases, is as much about power as it is about knowledge. Power not only enables us to cope with our deep awareness of weak vulnerability, but also eliminates that weakness from our consciousness. Remember what I had said earlier, how prideful boasting works against our ability to be vulnerable the vulnerability we need to mature, the vulnerability we need to maintain healthy relationships? Well, when you feel stupid or ignorant or when you feel weak or powerless, basically when you know you lack wisdom or you lack power in any situation, a humiliating sense of shame comes over you. The feeling that you're not enough, that you're not, you're not worth it. In any, in, in any relationship or in any situation, the, 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 the knowledge, the sense that you're just not enough. Um, you know, in the context of prideful boasting, uh, that is absolutely destructive. Um, we feel humiliated uh, when we're shamed. We feel humiliated because of what other people think of us and say to us and do to us. And we feel humiliated and shame because of what we think of ourselves in that moment of feeling powerless, in that moment of feeling ignorant. And in the context of prideful boasting, uh, this fuels our divisions. Think about it. When, you feel, when we feel confident, when we feel like we're in the know or we are in control, we feel confident. But when we, when we feel like we are not in the know, when we feel like we are out of the loop, or when we feel helpless, we feel exposed. And in a viciously competitive environment, that dynamic fuels pride in some people and shame in other people. And that's when we begin to splinter. That's, that's when some people boast about what they've won. And some people, oddly enough, begin to boast about what is owed to them so that we are not able to trust one another. And we divide into camps and groups. But what God boasts about is knowing 
you. This is the little surprise. What God boasts about is knowing us. We like to boast about what we know and who we know. God boasts about knowing you. The prophet Zephaniah said to Israel, sing aloud and shout, rejoice and exult with all your heart. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rescue, I'm sorry, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will rejoice over you. He will, he, he will exult over you with loud singing. Who sings to a little child? Who brags about their kids? A loving parent. And the prophets say is that this is what the God of the universe does with you who are his child. He, he brags about you to the universe. He boasts about you to the cosmos to the angels and to the demons. And it says in another place that the angels are absolutely confounded and amazed. These are perfect beings. Are absolutely baffled by the type of love that God has shown to people like you and me. Read First Peter. God rejoices. God exults with loud singing. God brags about you to the universe. In a sense, being a Christian is coming to terms with that, is being able to believe that God is proud of you and is more excited about what he's done for you and what he's doing in you than anything else. How does he do that? How is it possible that the creator of the universe would want to brag about you? You know, you know yourself. How is it that God would, would boast about you and what he's done with you? Well, he robed himself in human flesh and he took on the form of a servant. And he walked into Satan's backyard. The least likely of heroes or scholars, just a common carpenter from a historically harassed people group, in a family with a shady past. And after 33 years of withstanding Satan's best attempts to kill him, humiliate him, eradicate him, Jesus surrendered to the most vicious scheme of all, a Roman cross. But there, there at the cross, Satan's wisdom, the power of human government and misguided religion were all simultaneously defeated when God's wrath was finally poured out in judgment on Jesus. When our sins were judged in Jesus on the cross, when our shame was absorbed by Jesus on the cross and God's wrath finally was satisfied and God's justice finally was fulfilled so that forgiveness could be yours, so that reconciliation with him and one another could be yours, so that the love of God and the life of God, the uncorruptible life of God, could finally be yours. So that for the first time in history and in your life, hope is possible. Joy is possible. That's what God's proud of. 
That's what God boasts about. That's what God sings about. What he's done in you. Bringing you to himself. That's what he's proud of. You be proud of that. You be proud of what God has done by his wisdom and his power to bring you to himself. You be proud of that and don't boast in anything else. And believe it or not, you'll start to notice that it's easier to learn. And it's easier to develop healthy relationships with the people in your life. And as a community of faith, as a family of faith, our divisions and fractions will begin to mend together with thankful hearts in peace. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. The Christian community can boast in what brings us together, the grace of God. So stop boasting in the things that divide us. Cultivate instead a thankful heart because God did what you couldn't. Let's pray. Father, uh, we confess that we were fools to look at your wisdom as though it were just for more.